consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Okay, this is Friday of week 15, aka the last day of instruction for me. What about for y'all? We've got one more week. One more week of instruction? Yes. Okay, my life suddenly seems easier. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you said that. (laughs) You're welcome. But, I mean, to be fair, life's been a little um, jam-packed recently. (laughs) But have you had a little something going on? It's a little something. So the end of the semester is always jam-packed. You have, you always have, first of all, your, the, the concert week at the end of the semester is the worst. Yes. Every night you're at work until, and your students are also at school all day. So they show up to class that week and they're just zombies, like one eye pointing this way, one eye pointing that way. And you can't even blame them because they've got so much going on. They've got their recitals. They've got ensemble concerts. They've got like finals on the brain plus like the weather's getting nice so then you're just like the the future is in front of you you know yes so all that plus I'm on a search committee that for reasons I won't get into was kind of delayed a little bit and then we realized we had to schedule everything before the end of the semester Mm -hmm. and search committees are actually a lot of fun I find but it's you do breakfast, you do lunch, you do dinner, you watch them teach, you watch them that. So all of the free time in your day, and oftentimes when you're already doing stuff that you have to reschedule, it's just like Tetris, where can I fit in the stuff? Mm -hmm. And then, because I didn't know I was going to be on the search committee, I have scheduled for this last week that we just finished and the upcoming week to be in the recording studio, recording and editing an album. So I've got five-hour chunks uh, just dedicated to that. I literally woke up in the middle of the night last night and my embouchure was like pulsing. It was aching so bad. Did you take ibuprofen? I should have. That would have been the smart thing to do. That's a horn player trick. (laughs) 
<laughs> hey, this ain't horn dish. Horn dish. Double horn dish. <laughs> that sounds like the worst casserole ever. <laughs> you bring it to Sunday, Sunday brunch or whatever. I got some horn dish. Horn dish. That's a Pullman delicacy. Ugh. <laughs> um, but in the middle of all this busyness, you and I have both got a couple really good uh, shot in the arms. And so we oh, thought, yeah. instead of our usual end of semester complaining, which is a staple, of course, <laughs> of the podcast, <laughs> what if we sent some good vibes out into this double read land and talked about some good news that we've gotten recently? Okay. You first. Okay. So <laughs> so I guess if you if you have been a longtime listener, you know that back in I don't remember, was it 2017 or 2018? I bought Amerigo Oboe that I was totally in love with and I have been falling deeper and deeper in love with. Well, a couple since. episodes ago we learned is named Greenbow. Greenbow. <laughs> Well, I actually am now officially Amerigo artist, and I could not be more excited. Shout out to the Marigo brand for being incredible, and shout out to Abby Eekle Held for being incredible. Uh, I'm just so excited to represent this brand of this oboe that has really felt like my authentic voice for the last however many years. I just love it so much. Um, And I'm so excited to be on their website as a Marigo artist. When I bought the oboe in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe someday I'll be a Marigo artist. And then I was like, nah, that'll never happen. And here we are. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm so proud of you. We aspire to these types of opportunities. And I don't know about you, but I always feel like a kid still. Like for those of our listeners who are students and you're like, one day I'll pass over this bridge and I'll be a professional and I'll feel like a professional. I I don't know. Like in some ways, I guess, like when I have to do inconvenient things and I'm like, oh, grading. Yeah, I'm a professional. But like, I don't know. There's cool like touchstone moments like that that you just got that it's kind of like, oh, yeah, this thing I once thought maybe I could do. (laughs) I'm a real girl. I'm a real girl. (laughs) Anyway, super, super, super huge thanks to Renaud Patalovsky and Abby Eagleheld. You guys are amazing and I am so excited. Booyah. Congratulations, Booyah. girls. Amazing. Um, so tell us about your super exciting news. Well, first I will contextualize this news. So I got it, this news, actually just a couple of minutes ago within the last half hour, which is cool, in the middle of like a stress rant at my husband. I was just like, I've got this going on. I'm overwhelmed. Life is terrible. Like just losing all of my composure. Chris is like wide-eyed and backing away slowly. Like full-on pity party. Like (laughs) full-on pity party. And then I looked at my email and I um, got notified that I have been selected to receive a grant that I applied for um, back in January um, called the New Faculty Seed Grant. It's the biggest grant that... um, 
is eligible to pre-tenured faculty university-wide at WSU. Um, they had 30 applicants and they funded nine and I'm one of them. Um, so for those of you who've been listening, you know that my kind of emphasis in my creative activity is collaborating with native composers and um, emphasizing self-representation and all that good stuff. And so this grant has a, um, it's a bit bigger than most of the ones that musicians can apply to. And we are really encouraged to dream big. And so I was like, you know, where's the next direction that I take this work? And I um, am a big fan of the Maori composer, Jillian Whitehead. And I, of course, had a wonderful time speaking with Ben Hoadley when he was on the podcast. And I thought, you know, um, obviously I'm not Maori, but there are some really amazing, exciting Maori composers who um, are doing kind of the same thing that these native composers that I collaborate with do use their compositional voice to assert their indigenous identity and emphasize um, who they are within their musical landscape, but they do so in a unique, uniquely Maori way, right? So I was like, okay, it's deeply connected to this thing that I do, but it's also a departure, a new territory. And what if I viewed this as this like active indigenous solidarity and commissioned Maori composers who are writing phenomenal works, but with the exception of Jillian Whitehead, not composing for bassoon so much, at least the ones who I was really interested in. And I was like, what if I could get them to write for the bassoon? and um go learn because many of the um composers uh imitate or incorporate traditional maori instruments and traditional maori music and um i just think as an indigenous person you have to acknowledge the connection to land and connection to place first so for me it was not an option to do this project and not go to new zealand and experience land and place um, so I get to commission these composers. I get to go visit with them, um, collaborate with them in person, see Maori land, see New Zealand and um, learn and collaborate and create. And I am so excited. And then it's going to culminate in an album. How many years have you been dreaming about this? In various like manifestations, you know, um, recording indigenous composers really started back when we were in Platteville, like 10 years ago. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and I have ideas. One of the conditions of the grant is it has to go somewhere else. So that also caused me to look beyond this project and, okay, how can this be a through line throughout my career? And mm. um, anyway, the, uh, I, I just found out that it got funded and I'm going to be actually be able to do it. And so we have listeners in New Zealand. If you are listening to this, I want to hear from you. Please reach out jmwilsonbassoon at gmail.com, right? And be like, I'm a bassoonist in New Zealand. Like, let's collaborate. Let's get together. Um, I want to meet you. I want to hang out and play together. And uh, yes, please, I'm not joking, get in contact. It'll be about a year, <laughs> this time, 2023. Ooh, I'm so excited. Oh, so, yeah. So excited. More things to come. And, you know, these commissions are going to benefit everybody. Well, I guess not the oboists, but <laughs> we don't, we don't count that much. It's okay. All the bassoonists will get to enjoy these works once they're, once they're completed. So that's so, so so cool. I'm yes. so happy about this news. <laughs> Thank you. This, 
listen, if you're listening and you are sitting on some good news that you want to share with us, get in touch with us on some social media. We want to share in some good news. Yes, I completely agree. If you've received any good news, even if it was just like, I got a good night's sleep, you send that message us. We want to hear about it. We want to celebrate with you. We will celebrate your good news with you. Thousand percent. And you know what? If you don't have any good news, it's on its way because you're awesome and you're doing great. And yes, you're doing great, sweetie. You're doing great. And you have fantastic taste in podcasts. Oh, at least you have that. (laughs) Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. You're a distinct player with your own musical gifts and style, and we believe that your supplies should reflect that. At The Joyous Bassoon, we offer bassoon reed tools and accessories such as drying racks, soaker cups, keychains, earrings, and more. Choose from products readily available or submit a custom order. If you can dream it, we can make it. The Joyous Bassoon, products as unique as you. We are thrilled to welcome to Double Read Dish, Chris Weet, Professor Emeritus of Bassoon at the Ohio State University. Welcome. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's such fun to be with you. We're having a blast already. Um, (laughs) I would love to ask you how you came to play the bassoon. Yes, it's a long story, but I'm going to make it very short. Um, I was in seventh grade, junior high school. And my parents encouraged me to take up an instrument. They thought I might want to play music. So I went to Mr. Richmond and I said, Mr. Richmond, I want to play the oboe. Oh, and when I went up to the band room after school, he said, come up and see me. He said, you know, I just gave away the last oboe. Oh, (laughs) but I have something just like it. And I, I think what he meant was, Here's an instrument that you would like to play if you didn't want to be one of many flute players or mm. one of many clarinet players. Oh, yes. And so I was, I've was i lived with that fraud now for more than 60 years. <laughs> but Mr. Richard was a very dear man and an absolutely incredible musician. And after I got over the fact that the bassoon was just an awful instrument, the, the <laughs> school instrument was Lamp quality is what we call it now, right? <laughs> um, I did fall in love with the instrument. I got to high school, and it was a slightly better instrument. And by that time, I was hooked. Well, let us hear a little bit more about that. Talk us through um, falling in love with the bassoon and deciding, you know, this is what I want to do for my profession and embarking on that path. Maybe a bit about your training and educational journey. Sure. Um, In fact, through junior high, I became aware that I wanted to do something in music. And maybe the safest thing to do in music was be a music teacher. Mm -hmm. And we had very good music teachers in uh, the public schools of New Rochelle, New York, in those days. Mr. Richmond was my, my junior high school teacher, and there were some wonderful other teachers. 
And um, I think what attracted me to the instrument finally, because I also played the sousaphone. I, I started playing the sousaphone a few weeks after I started playing the bassoon. And the sousaphone could, worked. You know, I, I had three buttons and all of it. So I used to practice the sousaphone. And I probably learned all my music reading on the sousaphone. Mm-hmm. And the bassoon, well, I had to play in an orchestra, and it was just an awful instrument, and I knew that. But gradually, I started to get these invitations. Oh, you play the bassoon. Come and play in our orchestra. <laughs> I, I couldn't play all the notes on the instrument yet. <laughs> really. <laughs> and and um, so by the time I was in ninth or 10th grade, I started to think seriously about becoming a music teacher because we had good examples to follow. And I took that route. I went to State Teachers College, which later became Potsdam, SUNY Potsdam, the Crane Department of Music. And... Um, it, Along the way, I got some scholarships to study with real bassoon teachers. The first one, I don't know if you know his name. His name is Garfield. (laughs) (laughs) Bernard Garfield. I've maybe heard of him once or twice. Yeah, right. (laughs) But he was in New York in those days, a young man, and and playing in the ballet orchestra in New York. And then he got the big job in the Philadelphia Orchestra. I took a few lessons with him, maybe in ninth grade. And then in 10th grade, I got a a scholarship called a New York Philharmonic Scholarship to work with Mr. Goltzer, Harold Goltzer, outstanding teacher and um, member of the New York Philharmonic later. So I had lessons with him and I went one summer to Aspen. I was in high school. (laughs) I don't think they take high school kids in Aspen anymore, but that's how desperate they were for bassoon players. You know, maybe nowadays that doesn't, it isn't quite the same because there seem to be a lot more bassoon players around now. And then I went to Potsdam and there my good fortune was to be with Charles Robert Reinhardt. He was the bassoon teacher there. He's an honorary member of the IDRS now and an absolutely marvelous teacher and a man that I stayed in touch with all of his life. I used to play almost every year for him. Just go back and compare notes and so on. And Reinert was, uh, he left an indelible mark on me. And later, I, uh, when I left school to become a band director, I was a band director for two years in Albany, New York. I hadn't owned a bassoon up to that point. And I finally, because I I now was earning money as a teacher, I could get a bank loan and I I bought a policey bassoon. And... uh, then I got drafted. <laughs> My second year of teaching, I got drafted. Well, the second year of teaching was important also because that's when I married my high school sweetheart who's oh. sitting right over here, oh. Margaret. Her, her nickname is Padge. Everybody knows her as Padge. Oh. And we, we got together because we played chamber music together. Oh, stop it. No, really, it's true. It's true. And furthermore... That's probably what attracted me. In ninth grade, I started to play trios with and duos with Mr. Richmond. We played all the Beethoven duets when I was in ninth grade. Wow. I could, I could in, on that awful instrument, apparently I could play that stuff, you know. And, and um, it's kind of exciting. But I think that's what attracted me. Not so much playing in a band or orchestra, but playing chamber music. 
there was something about it being independent and meaning that I had, oh, my thoughts meant something. And it was important for me as a musician. What does Patch play? She's a cellist. Oh, nice. Yeah, she's a cellist and she has a superior ear. So that nowadays when I do my composition stuff, I play it for Padge and and she gets to decide on some stuff. <laughs> is she the secret sauce? Uh, you, you might say that. She certainly is in our life. Oh, no question. <laughs> secret sauce. Oh, my. I love that. <laughs> so what happened after you were drafted? I I was drafted and I was in my second year of teaching and they, the high school principal said, you should go in the National Guard. You'll be back here in six months. And I just, I thought, mm, I don't know if I like that idea. Uh, and meanwhile, there was an audition at West Point in the band. Uh, there was a schoolmate from Potsdam in the band. And he said, you know, we've got a bassoon opening. So we were in our first year of marriage. We did not own a car. <laughs> so I borrowed a car and I went down and I took the audition and the colonel the commanding officer said, okay, we'll take you, but you've got to sign up for an extra year. And I thought, you know, that's like insurance too, just like my teaching degree. I I would be guaranteed a position in the West Point band for three years. Uh, what we weren't aware of at that time was that Vietnam was going to bubble up and the whole drafting thing was going to get critically important for young men. Mm. So I signed on as an enlistee and the West Point Band, and we went there. I went through basic training and joined the band. We had our first son, and then we had our second daughter and uh, two kids on the Army. And, and then I started lessons with Mr. Polisi. And I also finished my master's degree while I was at West Point. You were busy. I was busy, and I was playing throughout New England, <laughs> we put 20, 30,000 miles on the car because I'd drive to Vermont and Albany and, and Chappaqua, New York. And <laughs> it was, you know, there wasn't any bassoon players. And I was teaching a part-time, you know, just private lessons up in Niskayuna, New York. And yeah, it was a formative time. And I played in the Poughkeepsie Orchestra. That was uh, that was called, now it's called the Mid-Hudson Philharmonic, and it was conducted by um, Claude Monto, the son of the great Monto. Okay. Yeah, that was, and a lot of guys from West Point were playing. We did, one of the things we did was the complete Daphnis and Chloe. Mm. Wow. I was playing contrabassoon. Mm. And in the interlude between the first suite and the second suite, there's this interlude of music. It's maybe three, four minutes long. There's a contrabassoon solo. <laughs> but nobody knows that because we never play it. <laughs> when I went to the Army, I went in as a band director. I was a music educator. And I was fully prepared to do that again. And I thought that that Army experience in that band, because it was a freaking outstanding band, which just had great players in it. Larry Combs was in it. You know, Larry was eventually first clarinet in Chicago. Wow. And Norm Schweikert and 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 
and uh, what's her name, Stevens, who was first trumpet in L.A. I mean, we had incredibly good musicians. So it was, I thought, well, this is good. I've got those people in my ear. Now I can go teach school. But then I thought, no, maybe I should audition. So I auditioned for the Chamber Symphony of Philadelphia. And it was going to be conducted by Anshel Brusloff. And they hired me, second bassoon and contra. So I had a job when I got out of the army. And I went to that and I played that orchestra for two years. And then I got, I took an audition in Toronto during my second season in the Chamber Symphony. And I got the job in, in Toronto as co-principal with two principal players, both called co-principal. And I was there for 17 years. And after that, I came to Ohio State. What prompted your transition from uh, orchestral playing? It seems you were there a long time. You were probably very happy uh, to a full-time teaching position. Um, I was in my mid-40s. And I looked ahead to retirement, which in North American orchestras is 65. And I thought, am I going to make it physically? Mm. Am I going to be able to play this high level of um, accomplishment? Because the skill level on that for any orchestral member is very, very high. And I thought, wow, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And there was a good offer from Ohio State. They wanted a full-time bassoon teacher. I uh, didn't have to teach theory or or history would I might have been able to do but I would or secondary clarinet or something like that it was all bassoon and I had to teach graduate work which I had not done but I was very much engaged by that literature repertoire for masters and doctoral students I also did a, class, a course of uh, performance enhancement it was one of the earliest courses in handling the problem of stage fright you know and we did that. We had a couple of co-teachers. It was a great course to be involved in. So that was my load. And um, I did that until 2006 when I, I stopped teaching at Ohio State. I taught for four more years. A few years later, I went to Capital University and taught part-time at Capital just on the instructor level. And then I decided to stop playing so I didn't answer your question completely. Um, I decided physically I was, uh, I know, am I going to make this? And uh, the offer was too good to miss. And if I wanted to leave the orchestra at the age of 45 in Canada, uh, much as we love Canada, because both of our kids are Canadian, what, there wasn't the scope for my professional career that would be in the United States. There were no full-time bassoon teachers in universities, for one thing, whereas there were maybe a couple of dozen of them down here. So we decided to come back to the States. I have so many questions. I want to hear more about this performance anxiety class for sure. But before we move on, you know, Toronto is a fantastic orchestra, and you mentioned wanting um, to be able to keep up that that high quality level. So I'd love to hear your perspective on your approach to playing principal bassoon and, and what makes a great principal bassoonist in the orchestral setting. Well, it, my friend um, 
Barry Steves, who's in the Cleveland Orchestra, has said something at bassoon camp one year. He says, you know, we're bassoon players. We have to get along <laughs> with everybody. We play with the horns and the violas and the cellos and the basses and the clarinets. And, and we're in the middle with the diplomats of the orchestra, really, rather than the clowns. <laughs> I mean, we also. I clowns. feel attacked personally. <laughs> yeah, right. It's true. Though. Yeah. We are, and we do, we do uh, such an incredible. I mean, it's interesting to play the bassoon in an orchestra, because your allegiances are being divided amongst so many important things. The big solos are few and far between. You know, it's not like the clarinet or the first horn. I enjoyed doing it. I, um, you have to be cooperative with everybody else playing bassoon it's not like let's say being the concert master where you to throw your weight around and decide on bowings and stuff like that it's really quite different and um i i've become concerned about young people and the way bassoon is going the character of the instrument is not um it doesn't it's not like every other instrument so let me just go on that riff for a few moments here. I think that Paul Hindemith's sonata and John Steinmetz's sonatas get the character of the instrument absolutely right. It's not a bust your buttons, clarinet, leap around this, you know, arpeggio, blah, 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 that kind of thing. It's not that kind of instrument. And it doesn't have that kind of sound. It's, it's a sound like the low voice it's a sound which is reflective and and um, memory laden rather than celebratory and play a fanfare for the announcement about the king. It's not that kind of instrument. So you have to, I think, young bassoonists have to take that seriously and figure out what it is that the instrument is. Now, the most important thing is is not a loud instrument. And we have to deal constantly with trying to be loud enough. And either because the scoring was not right or the conductor is demanding more and more bassoon when he, he or she should be saying less and less everybody else. We need to hear that instrument. The bassoon is like a soft rank of sound on, on a grand pipe organ. And without the soft ranks of those pipes, the grand organ, when it's all playing all by itself, you, it doesn't sound right because we fill in the, the cracks, even though you can't really tell that the soft ranks are playing. It, if you take them out, you can really notice it. All of our big solos are soft. Sherman Walt said that in a class once. I couldn't believe it. I was already a full-time player, and there he was, and he said, don't forget, all of our... Solos are marked piano, even the Beethoven fourth. <laughs> it's not, it's not loud. And you're lucky if you're playing in a kind of ensemble where they get out of your way so you can be heard. Now, band playing is wonderful. I, I'm frankly a band geek. I love to hear good bands. And I played <laughs> in some good bands. But the problem of double reed players playing in bands is we were overloaded, doubled out of existence. But in fact, people like Percy Granger said, we need to have more of that reedy quality. Mm -hmm. The 
single reed reedy sound and the double reed reedy sound in bands. And oboes and bassoons were the first band instruments in the modern era. There were bands before that with, you know, but back to Louis the Fourteenth, he had his he had his stable of oboes and bassoons that played all the ceremonial music. So the, the historical uh, position of the double reeds is very important in the band. I would love to have the double reeds be just as important as those loud trumpets and euphoniums uh, in band. So that's that's where I am with, with that stuff. I wanted to make sure that I got a, a little chance to vent. I vent. I think that was a vent. Yes. I really carried on, didn't I? This is a place to vent. We <laughs> really? really? Fish, we vent, we rant. Yes, it's all yeah. <laughs> rant, vent. Yeah. Good. It does seem like a like a very uh common frustration. In fact, I just was with Jackie over the weekend and uh <laughs> My comment from the dress rehearsal was that the oboe was too loud. The sound check, it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I felt like well, I was blowing my brains actually, out. the oboe can almost always be heard. Yeah. It can. It ha- It's in the treble. Mm-hmm. And it has, and that's why it's so prominent, an instrument. You know, it's even more prominent than the flute. Although, don't tell the flute players that. They think <laughs> they are in charge, but they're really not. It's the oboe. <laughs> <laughs> and even the clarinet, you know, you you can come through the way uh, you don't have the loudness of the clarinet. Boy, you let go, you let that clarinet section play loud. They can really bury everybody. But the oboe, but the bassoon, the higher the bassoon goes, the softer it gets. Well, what about the theory that the person who is really in charge of the wind section is the second bassoon? Well, especially if the pitch is wrong. <laughs> That's who's to blame. <laughs> yeah, well, if they play too sharp, the poor flute players have no chance. Yeah. Because it just boots them right off the end of the scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the second bassoon, but I would add to that, the second oboe, second horn, second clarinets, second flutes are just as important. Because if you don't have good seconds, you can't do a good job on first because you're worried uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to come in wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. You have to have really reliable people, and they get their unsung heroes. They don't get any credit. No. <laughs> Why you want to be a first bassoon? It's not a second anymore. You well, it's true. It's true. Everybody wants to be. <laughs> we want the glory. There was a wonderful article written a number of years ago. Oh, gosh, it's got to be sixty years ago, by a clarinet player who said getting to first base. No, getting to first through bass. Get your job as a bass clarinet player, and then um, you can work your way up. Work your way up gradually. I think it was Freeman was his name, and and a very good clarinet player. And and that's because that's sort of what I did. I got a job playing second in contra in Chamber Symphony Philadelphia, and then I got the f- first bassoon job in Toronto. I would love to ask you about your extremely prolific creative output you have written books you have done compositions and arrangements and you've really contributed to the literature uh for the double reads and i would love to get your thoughts on that for full-time players i sometimes think that people who dabble in publishing and maybe not so much teaching 
there's you sort of suspect that you're not practicing enough or whatever. But I've now in retirement, I can see that I've always been a teacher. Mm. I've always uh, I have the empathy and uh, to be a teacher and. Part of that is sharing information by publication. Mm-hmm. And I started when I was in my mid-20s, I published a book on reed making. And it went through three different editions. I've done another fourth one. And as I learned more, and more about reed making. But when I started teaching high school in 1961, there, there was only one book about making double reeds. That was American. There were a couple of European ones, but you had to be able to read French or Czech or German. (laughs) So I decided to write a book. And then I finally, I worked it out so that I published it while I was at West Point. And it has a little bit become a standard, although there's some others. About the same time we published that book, the the book by Popkin and Glickman came out and uh, some others because everybody saw the same problem. Mm-hmm. What were these kids in schools where there was no bassoon instruction? How were they going to get to make reads? Right. So that's partly what I was reacting to that. And the composition part, I finally, after I retired, finally could spend real serious time promoting and writing more. And I, that's, I consider myself a composer now. Uh, <laughs> almost said not a broken down bassoonist <laughs> I stopped playing in 2014 I stopped playing and teaching and the reason I did was part m- mostly physical I just couldn't play the way I expected anymore I was not interested in practicing on that level and making reads and driving at night I had to drive at night to teach and I got a little leery of driving at night in the rain and snow. And I thought some younger people have to do this. So I did that. And then I was able to spend more time composing. And I have, I have my little list here. I've got three published books and um, actually three, four, five, six, seven, eight published books. And I published my own books. This is a difficult thing for people that are in universities because the science people are not allowed to do that. Right. You don't publish your own stuff. But the arts, we almost have to. In fact, um, <laughs> I'd been teaching at Ohio State for well, 15 years when I discovered, oh, the arts, the people in the visual arts, when they hang a gallery, they they get what's called a subvention to help them the costs of hanging this artwork. In other words, the university will help them to publish it mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a public, it's like a concert. It's a, a public publication. You know? yes. So the arts, you have to realize that the arts should deal with themselves differently from the way the science do the sciences. And I believe strongly in the whole scientific method. I mean, that's tremendously important. Those rules are different for us. Um, We, unfortunately, have to publish. Otherwise, (laughs) we wouldn't 
we wouldn't have near as many of the publications and concerts. I love to tell my science people that we we had no we had a dissertation at Ohio State for the Doctor of Musical Arts that consisted of a document, a written document, right. and four public performances. The dissertation was considered to be the four public performances and the document. Right. And the difference was that, for example, in the public performance, theoretically, somebody didn't like it, they could stomp out. Right? You didn't have to wait for some referee to tell you, you know, you didn't cross every T and dot every I. Right. I mean, it's almost immediate. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd like to have audiences that are friendly. And then there's your committee, you know, you've got to satisfy them too. And before we move on to talk about some of the other stuff um, among your prolific output, um, which is extensive, perhaps one of the better known um, contributions is your method book, Bassoon Strategies for the Next Level. And I wonder if you could talk to our listeners a bit about the conception of that book. And if they're not familiar, maybe a a description to entice them to check it out. Um, I know I've incorporated it into my playing and and really enjoy it. Lovely. I'm so happy to hear that. The book, uh, Bassoon Strategies for the Next Level, is really not a method but it, 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 I'm happy that you call it a method. It's not but where, you know, you get to play scales on one page and then something else. It's not quite that. It has much more to do with some of the realities that we deal with, like playing loud enough or practicing or, or um, playing in tune, stuff like that. And I wanted it to be a reference book. So that a person could dip into it and say, well, I'm having to, I, I need to do something with my double tonguing. You know, I can't double tongue. How do I do? Well, you could read the several essays I've done on double tonguing and in there. Um, I think I'm a little bit more proud of a, uh, the warm ups, the bassoon warm ups are a lot more like a method. Uh, even though there's, it's only 12 pages long. And I'm very, very proud of it uh, because I, I warmed up like that, using that for many, many years. And I finally published it, uh, and Emerson Edition published it in England, and they've done a very good job of doing that with a humorous front cover of bassoons in a kettle. Warming up. <laughs> Warming up. Yeah, right. Okay. So I'm very proud of that. Now, I've I've done a couple of scale books. One is uh, Scales for Reading. Now, here's an important point. Uh, Early in my uh, playing, a family friend was a very well-known clarinet player by the name of Reginald Kell. Uh, His family and my family had come across from England to the United States about the same time. So we kind of knew each other. And Kell was an outstanding solo clarinetist. And I got to play some duets with him one time. And I said, oh, Mr. Kell, my, my sight rating, it's not very good. I was probably in the 10th grade or the 9th grade or something. And he said, oh, all you have to do is learn what the scales and arpeggios look like. 
and you'll be a better reader. I've never forgotten that. And he was absolutely right. So I decided to do a bunch of scales for reading. Mm. And the scales are not in multiple octaves. And they're also written with all of the accidentals. They're not written with the keys. And the, the reasoning behind that is that when we read something in music, uh, if it modulates, then you have to read the accidentals unless the key changes. So, um, and the reason I just did one octave patterns is that I listened to so many juries with three octave scales in the clarinet and noticed that it was rarely in tune and very often they really didn't practice it very hard at the top. And coming down, you'd lost complete focus as to what the key was. Why are we so hung up on three octave scales or two octave scales in the, in the saxophone? I mean, if they don't know one octave scale well, you know, learn one octave and then learn the second octave. You know, I, I don't... It, uh, one of the problems for us technically my thoughts are jumbled about this. One of the problems for us as woodwind players is that the fingerings have no relationship to the intervals. And furthermore, the sets of fingerings on the bassoon, especially change completely in the second octave. Mm -hmm. Oh, the piano, you can play all eight octaves with the same fingerings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, It's just wonderful, you know, but we don't have that luxury. Uh, Whereas the strings, for example, their fingering sometimes tells them, well, this is an interval of a whole step or a half step. Not in our case. So we were hung up on scales more so maybe than any other instruments, the woodwinds. It helps to see them. And it helps to see them and to be able to read them. Uh, I, I object a lot to telling young people they have to memorize the scale. Let's say they memorize them up to the first four flats or four sharps or whatever the the state requirement is memorize the scale yeah but if you put them down in 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 orchestra and they have to play an e major scale they can't play they can play it from memory but they don't know what it looks like so i tried to upend that whole thinking and give them a book that at least they could recognize four sharps (laughs) if they needed to would you share with us a favorite memory of a past performance? Well, one of the things I'm proudest of is uh, we had an ensemble in Toronto for six years called the Toronto Chamber Winds. It's a wind octet. And we made a recording in the second season of the Big Serenade in B-flat by Mozart for 12 winds and double bass, sometimes misnamed it. Serenade for 13 Winds. It isn't. (laughs) We made a recording, and it was a historic recording because we played from the, in those days, new, brand new, complete edition, corrected edition with Baron Ryder's parts. In fact, one of the members of the ensemble was one of the editors, Dan Leeson. So we did it. We did with bassett horns and uh, double bass, and we we made the recording. I was, I'm very proud of that recording. It's since been re-released on CD for the first time by Crystal Records. And the historic part two 
on that we also did with it was we played, uh, we embellished the Eingangs. Mm-hmm. The Eingangs had been forgotten by wind players, but the singers and the piano players that played the music of Mozart and Haydn and from that period had not forgotten how to do these little little interjections when there's a pause, when there's a fermata. And the Mozart uh, has five or six of those. So we did, we did that. And we also did another thing. We embellished in the repeats, not widely, but just a little bit. So if you listen to the recording, you can tell that the player doesn't play exactly the same way uh, on the repeat. Padge is the one that was the leading uh, editor, sound editor on that, and clipping the tapes. And we had to be careful because hel- helicopters would fly over, trucks oh, would go by. <laughs> so <laughs> we had to edit that stuff. And again, it was before the digital age. age. Okay. So I'm pretty proud of that. Well, since she's here, we thought it would be fun to ask Padge a question. Would she be up for that? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> We've never had a double read spouse on an interview portion. We've had, have had each of our spouses on the episodes, but so I want to know, Padge, what is the best thing about being married to a bassoonist and the worst thing about being married to a bassoonist? Whoa. <laughs> I think, well, one of the best things is his appreciation and love of all kinds of music and his acceptance of a string player and <laughs> the worst thing used to be all the darn shavings from the reed making on the floor. <laughs> but um, no, we've had a wonderful, wonderful time together, starting with the ninth grade when he called me up to play the Beethoven septet with him and then going through concerts together and, and, uh, going to separate colleges and writing love letters and keeping in touch and, and playing in orchestras together when we came back for, for holidays at, at home with our parents. And uh, it's just been a, a wonderful ride. We're, we're heading towards our 50. Six, 59th, 60th wedding anniversary. Yeah. Congratulations. But yeah, bassoon players, again, they're the nice guys in the orchestra. They're not the ones with all these huge egos. And so he's been such a sharing person to, to play with and, and to live with. It's just been a great, a great companionship. Yeah. Thank you for indulging us that question. Yes, thank you. And um, I find it very interesting that his uh, his way into your heart was asking you to play chamber music. It's a very nice excuse to call up a pretty girl. Tell, tell them what your dad said. Well, my, I'm an only child and probably was a little bit spoiled. And when the, this voice on the telephone was Chris Weed asking me, may I speak to Padge? My father said, um well what do you want well well I was hoping we could have a rehearsal but you know so I said dad dad it's not a date it's it's it's, it's music she was in the ninth grade brilliant <laughs> it's just a brilliant strategy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got in through a loophole it wasn't a strategy <laughs> 
I mean, I oh needed a goodness. job player, you know. Yeah, right. That's, I, was that was a, all you I was a contractor. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a bad thing. <laughs> and it took me you a were a contractor. <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, he's he's been sharing his his life and love with me, all his teaching. I got to know his students, which was wonderful. But then we collaborated on these long trips where we go to the double read meetings and take his music to be sold. We talk about the things and the problems that students had. And so together we came up with the ideas of making side straps that will help the weight of the bassoon and, and help with hand problems and making the uh, beveling tools that will help with the reed making. And so I'm a sewer and a quilter and stuff. So I've been doing the. She made those signs back then. Yeah. So oh, it's phenomenal. I've yeah. been making things for to help with his teaching. And then we we collaborate on, you know, well, what are you telling kids to do? And when they're nervous for their for their uh, playing and, and classes and we come up with ideas to share on uh, on his. Uh, what was the class that you caught? Nerd performance, performance enhancement. enhancement. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that's what it was. So, uh, yeah. you know, we it, I felt like I've had a full time career in a funny kind of way just by being along with him on his career. It's been a wonderful sharing. Yeah. But oh, you, that's been wonderful. And the cellist in the Pro Music Chamber Orchestra of Columbus for seven, 22 years. Yeah, 17. Well, anyway. Yeah. And, 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 and with, she was the first cellist to play in Canada's Baroque Orchestra called. Um, um, What's, yeah, right. what's the name of it? <laughs> you were you were the first person to be play cello yeah. for them. Yeah. Uh they're now a world world famous orchestra. And uh, both of us are pulling a blank, which is yeah, right. showing our age. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we we've had Taffle lovely, music. Taffle music, yeah. Wow. So yeah, yeah it's it's so Padge is a very distinguished cellist. Plays <laughs> He's got a great ear. He's got a much better ear than I have. Okay, go back to talking to Chris. He's good. He's the one. <laughs> Could you talk to us a little bit about your philosophy on reeds and reed making? Uh, it just so happens that I have this giant reed here. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, the two things that I think young, first of all, teachers, bassoon reed teachers, should not try to make, should not try to instruct young players in making reeds from a piece of cane. They should instruct them first how to adjust the reed because the band director is saying, you know, you played out of tune. I want you to play, or it's not loud enough or it's not soft enough. I want you to fix your reed or something. That's what the kid has got to do uh, before they learn how to make the back end and gouge and profile and all that stuff. They've got to work on adjusting the reed so they can play it better. That's number one. Number two, the two things that I think are very important for us are uh, ironing the reed after you've let it dry. When you soak the reed up, you should then smooth the blade and you can do it by pulling your fingers across it like this, or you can put a plaque in and take a knife and then smooth it out. And the reason for that is that it wrinkles. I learned this from a noble player. Uh, the oldest would use, a, uh, he would take a, a pencil eraser and go down the blade of his reed on both sides. And then it would play pretty much the way it played yesterday. Instead of you've picked up a reed after soaking it, it doesn't play anything like it did yesterday. 
That's because I'm definitely going to try that. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely. Uh, it's a good idea to put a plaque in. It needs to be wet. <laughs> and then, and you could use just your thumb and forefinger just by pulling with an oboe reed. You could just pull your reed. Bassoon, we could do it with a bassoon reed too. The other thing about bassoon reeds is these blade edges, you need to have a plaque in there that lets you see how thick the blade edges are. And they should look exactly the same. So if the blade edges are balanced or looked exactly the same, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter about the thickness as much as it matters that this end maybe is a little heavier and then it thins out and thins out and gets paper thin down there, that it looks exactly the same. All four blades, edges, all four blade edges. Those are the big advice things that I get people on. Wonderful. The back end should not leak, too. That's another thing. Because very often the reed, uh, otherwise it's playing very well, is leaking on the vocal. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, if that happens, it, there's all kinds of problems. So our favorite question to end on is what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Mm. Learn how you learn. I I dealt with that in college because uh, mainly through my teacher Mr. Reiner that he seemed to figure out how it was that each of his students would learn some of us learn visually some of us learn tactilely by putting fingers on the instrument some of us learn by using the ear some of us learn by looking at the music and saying oh that's the fingering that relates to that etc so learn how you learn. And I think that, and then learn how to practice. Now, now this is such a cliche, <laughs> but it's really, um, practicing is different for every one of us, mainly because we're all built a little differently. And uh, let's take, for example, a person who learns um, fingerings by looking at a fingering chart. And they can remember that fingering chart without ever putting their fingers on the instrument. Mm-hmm. Whereas another person, only this feeling, the, ta- the tactile feeling, is the way they absorb that. So they ha- you, I think you have to know how is it you learn and then figure out how to be an efficient practicer. And now uh, practicing evolves. And when you're practicing for competitions, it's quite different than when you're practicing for when you were in a full-time job. Did I pass? Yeah. <laughs> Chris, we thank you so much for spending this hour with us. We had such a fun time talking to you and to Padge, and it was just a delight. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for that delightful episode. Um, Don't forget to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Get in touch on social media. We love, love hearing from y'all and can't thank you enough for your support. Galit, who's coming up on the next IP? We had an awesome talk with Cassie Pilgrim, Principal Oboe of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads. And I actually am about to go make reads. Oh, maybe for the first time in the history of this podcast. That's actually what I'm going to do right now. Oh, my God.
That's good news. 